This is our weekly opportunity to sit under the preaching of the Word. We know that all week long there's messages coming at you from every angle. This is our chance as a, a family to sit under the, the message that comes from the words of Scripture. My job is to not get in the way of that message, but to make it as plain as I can to your ears that you might understand and believe and go live this beautiful truth together. Uh, so that's our aim in this time. It's a huge gift to me to be able to, to serve you in this way. Uh, but you're not passive right now. You're humble, so you're quiet, but you're engaged and you're listening and thinking and allowing the Spirit to make some truth come alive to your soul. All right, let's do this. Most beautiful words ever heard in a hospital room. For me, easily number one was August 7th, 2000, the birth of our oldest son. Dr. Wachowski looked at Grace and I and said these words, Grace, it's a boy. Just like that, totally standard template of what he would say. That's what he said, Grace, it's a boy. Boom. Number two, second most beautiful word that I have heard in a hospital room. Four years later, we had had two sons. We are not the type to figure out the sex of the baby, unlike most many of you. And so on that morning, about 6.30 a.m., I heard these words in a hospital. Grace, it's a girl. And our whole universe got totally wildly rocked. Third most beautiful word that I have heard in a hospital room, very different. 81-year-old husband in the hospital, 80-year-old wife. She has lymphoma and she's dying. And the doctors have told this couple, married for over 50 years together, she's dying very soon, probably today, maybe just a few hours, maybe a few minutes. And the man leans in, and he takes his wife's head in his hands, and he says to her, I love you, and I'll see you there. I love you, and I'll see you there. This is the sound of faith. This is the sound of a man who was all in on the promises of God to him in Christ, namely that this life right here, right now, with all of its highs and all of its lows, is not the only life that there is, that this world right here with all of its glories and all of its deep, deep sorrows is not the only world that there is that this age, with all of its awesomeness and all of its brokenness, is not the only age that there is. That there is a life, there is a world, there is an age to come in which death is no more. All things will be made new, all wrongs will be made right, and we will be restored and reunited not only to God, although that's true, 
but also to each other. And we will live in perfected community together forever. All right, somehow that 81-year-old saint jammed all of that gospel truth into these four simple words. I'll see you there. Here's our question today. Was this guy right? Was he just losing it? Is this statement just wishful thinking? A placebo, you know, like a crutch that an old man needs to lean on when he's about to lose the love of his life? Is this just a nice-sounding platitude, but ultimately just religious fiction? Not if Scripture is true. Because the clear teaching of Scripture, the wild and beautiful teaching of Scripture, is that the blood-bought saints of God will recognize and love and enjoy each other forever. All right, let's pray and we'll get into this. Father, help us to see some things that are hard to see. Would you give us an appetite for mystery today and also for faith, but not blind faith, faith that is anchored to our experience and to your revelation and primarily to the person and the work of Jesus. Give us that kind of faith today, Lord. We ask for it. Amen. All right, here's what we're doing together. We are preaching for a few months on a most neglected doctrine, the doctrine of heaven, or more precisely, the doctrine of the age to come, or even more precisely, the doctrine of the new heaven and the new earth that are coming that will be fused together, in which we will get what the Bible calls eternal life or everlasting life. In other words, good, happy, joyous, raucous, satisfying, secure, super bright life the way it was intended to be forever. That's the doctrine that we are swimming in together for the next couple of months. We are two sermons into this. We've been rocked by two truths. The first one was this. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glories of of the age to come. And we all fell down when we heard that, and then we scrambled back to our seats and said, if that's true, because the sufferings of this age are like a 20 on the Richter scale, if you're telling me that all of those sufferings don't even register compared to the glory that is to come, will someone please unpack for me those glories? We said, yes, that's what we're going to do for a few months together. The second glory was this. We will see and enjoy the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, unfiltered, unrushed, uninterrupted, unthreatened, forever. We call that the beatific vision, the happy-making sight. Our eyes will lay on Christ and joy unspeakable will be ours in that moment, increasing forever. That's the essential joy of the age to come. But we said that's not the only joy. That is like a fountain joy that cascades with dozens and dozens of other joys. 
And one of those joys is that the joy of heaven is not only a spiritual joy in which you will experience individual rapture, but it is a social joy. You will experience the joys of heaven in community, in community. All right, someone raise a hand and say, where are you getting that from? Let's do some Bible together. There's so many texts that present this idea to us. I'm going to show them to you and hit you with them 60 seconds at a time to begin to build a biblical case for this. Older covenant, shadows, hints, premonitions of this glory. Let's talk about Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. He heard gospel, he believed it, and he was justified. The same way that you are saved is the way that Abraham was saved. Faith working through love. He was not a perfect man. He messed up a ton. But he also lived wholly a ton. He had a life that was packed with faith-born good works, and then he died. And here's how Scripture describes his death. It says these words, Abraham breathed his last and died. In a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was, feel this, gathered to his people. Not, and he ceased to exist, not, and he was absorbed into the energy of the universe, not, he went to a better place to be with God, he was gathered to his people. Beyond the grave, Abraham joined up with the community of the saints of God. All right, talk about David, another older covenant saint, also sinned terribly, terribly. Actually committed adultery with his right-hand man's wife and then offed his right-hand man and did it so sneaky that no one knew about this at all except for him and the woman. But God was not going to let that go under the radar. And so in love for David and for the good of his people, God brought this sin to the surface. He exposed and he judged David's sin. One of those judgments was that there would be no good to emerge from this sin, which meant that the child that was born of this sin would die. Then the weirdest thing happened. When the baby was fighting for his life, David was a total distraught mess. He would not eat. He would not drink. He looked like a mile of bad road. You remember Massachusetts the day after the election? This is what David looked like. Pleading for the Lord to spare his son. Everybody was getting very, very nervous. This is their king and he looks like he's about to die. Then the child died, and everyone thought, oh man, if David was such a mess while this kid was alive, what is going to happen now? To their surprise, David washed his face, the scriptures say. In other words, he pulled himself together and began to get back into the rhythms of normal life. And everyone was like, what just happened, David? You were a total wreck when the child was alive. Now that the child's dead, you're 
Fine, you've got this backwards, O king. Here was David's answer. He said to them, When the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now the child is dead. Why should I fast? I can't bring him back again. And then he says these words, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. There's a lot going on with this sentence, but here's what I want you to think about. It is clear that David was comforted by the thought that he would see his son again. And not just a nameless, faceless soul in eternity. He would see this child who he pled and wept over. We could do some other older covenant texts. Then we get into the new covenant and we see Jesus And toward the end of Jesus' ministry, his disciples were beginning to realize, piece it together, Jesus is not going to be with us too much longer. And they were getting bummed and confused and distraught and frightened and depressed about it. And here's what Jesus said to them. He said these words. First he said, don't be troubled. And then he gave his reason why. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Oh, man. Do you feel the future orientation in this statement of Jesus? In other words, he doesn't say, don't be troubled. Three years was a really good run. I'll leave you a trinket to remember me by. Here you go. Put it in your pocket. He doesn't say, I'm going to write a memoir, and then you can read it when you want to have warm, fuzzy memories of me. He doesn't say, it's okay, we'll always have Galilee. He doesn't say, you'll you'll tell great stories to your kids around the campfire, and you will remember me. He says, don't be troubled Because there is a future that is coming in which we will be together. This is is what Jesus said to them. He doesn't say, you'll remember me past tense. He says, it's okay because you will be reunited to me future tense. This community that we've experienced, this missional family that we have built together, this love that we've got for each other. All this awesomeness that we've known for three years, tight, this is not ending. This is just a taste. This is just a beginning. We will be together in my father's house, my dad's place, forever. Here's Jesus again in his very last earthly meal with his disciples. They're having real conversation, eating real food, real bread, real wine, They had done this so many times together. Jesus knows the cross is looming, and here's what he says to them. He says these words, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, can everyone feel the future hope in these words? Do you feel this? What's the implication of this statement from Jesus? We're not done eating and drinking and feasting together. 
There is a day that is coming when our relationship, our community will be restored only, what's the word that he uses? New. New and improved. These relationships, you guys, are not going to end. They're only going to get richer, deeper, better. Calling this meal the Last Supper is dirty hermeneutics. I had to use that big word because Jess graduated from theology school yesterday, so I wanted to throw a big theology word in. It's missing the point of the text if you just say this was Jesus' last supper. It was his last supper in a sense, but in another sense, no. This is last supper in this age, but in the age to come, many, many, many more. All right, last one, Paul, the Apostle Paul, church planter. One of the cities that he planted a church in was called Thessalonica. Very strange story. He was only with these people for a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe a couple of months. And then he got chased out of the city in the middle of the night, ran for his life to survive. But in those few weeks or those few months, they got wicked tight. You know how that happens sometimes, like in a short amount of time, you're with people and you just get tight, a missions trip or a summer camp or a team that you were on? That's what happened with Paul and these saints in Thessalonica. And it killed him to get removed from relationship with them. And so he writes them this beautiful letter that we have in our Bibles, and he says, man, I miss you guys. And I've been trying to get back there to see you, but it just hasn't happened yet. Then he says these words. He goes, but it's okay. It's okay because, here we go again, future hope. Because there is a day that's coming when we're going to be reunited and see each other before Jesus. Here's how he says it. Feel these words with me. What is our hope? What is our joy? Hope joy, and crown of boasting. What am I going to brag about? What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. I love this. In other words, in the age to come, on the day of Jesus, at his coming, when this world gives way to the next. He's going to see these specific people that he gospeled and pastored and loved so much. And he's going to recognize these specific people that he loved and he gospeled and he pastored so much. And he's going to run to them and embrace them and weep with them and laugh with them you seen those videos when a dad's back from uh, being overseas in the military and they don't tell his daughter or his wife and then he shows up and they turn around and everybody's just crying and laughing and hugging and they don't know what to do? He's saying that's going to go down just infinitely more glorious with no chance of ever separation happening again. That's going to happen before the Lord Jesus with you and with me. And I'm going to stand back and I'm going to point to you guys and I'm going to boast in you before Jesus. Jesus, look, it's Chris. I was there. 
the day that he was baptized and confessed his faith in your son. That's what Paul's saying. Look, it's Josh. Man, I watched him lead us week after week after week in worship, and he loved you. It's Josh. I'm going to boast in him. And it's Katie, and it's Jeremy, and it's Heather, and it's Grace. They will be his joy, his boast before Jesus on his day. What's the implication? What is the implication? We're going to recognize and remember and know and love and enjoy each other forever. All right, I could do 10 more texts. I just want to hit you with all of those in a hurry. And this is why it is no surprise when we get to Revelation 21, the vision of the city, the age to come, that super bright future that Jesus has prepared for us that we read these words. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says this, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, there's so much going on in here, but there's two elements to this vision that speak specifically to this idea that we're pressing on today. Here's the first one. The age to come is like a city. Notice what John does not see. He does not say, and I saw the holy yurt. Does anybody actually know what a yurt is? You do? Man, all right, I thought I was going to have to explain this to you. A yurt is like a one-person tent that they live in in the Himalayas, or if you just want to get away from everybody, you yurt it, and you go out there with your... I'm, I'm not a woodsman, so however you yurt it, he did not see the holy yurt. He did not see the holy prairie. He did not see the holy library. He did not see the holy studio apartment. You see what I'm saying? He says, I saw a holy city. Okay, there's so much built into this metaphor, but what's the point? It's not that that heaven is a concrete jungle or that subways and sidewalks trump um, horses and hiking trails or that God is against suburbs or, or the woods or yurts. That's not the point. The point is that not that you will not hike and camp and whitewater raft on the new earth. You probably will. The point is what? Community. Relationships. Togetherness. In other words, the joy of heaven are social joys. Social joys. Heaven's not like the matrix We're not going to all be in a little pod, just experience our individual nirvana. No. Heaven will be like a big, beautiful, holy city. We will live together in community. Yeah. Here's the second thing that John sees. Heaven's going to be like a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb is how he phrases it earlier in the book of Revelation. Again, there's tons of theological import to this metaphor of the bride with her husband. We're going to do that later in the series. But today, I just need you to feel the social part of this. Let me ask you this question. What is one of the most joyful social settings 
of this age, of this world, of this life. When we come together and we are with people who we love, we just have the best time together. Everybody looks good. Everybody smells good. You got to really be a loser to have an attitude at a wedding, right? It's like, <laughs> get over yourself. Somebody's getting married, like, unless it's a real piece of work. It's like a good, good day of community at a wedding. Mass rhythms on the DJ. I mean, that's like, that's social joy at its height. And we don't get those every day. Roy and Jess was the last party that we were at. It was fantastic. That kind of community, that kind of joy, is just a tiny little momentary taste of what is coming for us as the people of God. Heaven will be like the best of our social and communal times together forever. We're going to be together, we're going to know each other, and everything that would steal joy for us is going to be put away. It's going to be like like the best wedding ever, only better and getting better forever. That's what John saw. That's how he expressed the communal joys of the age to come. All right, let me finish with some objections and some implications. Okay, two objections that might be going through your head. And remember, we think about you, we love you, we pray for you before we preach. So we think, how will you hear this truth and how can we love you? So here's one potential objection. Oh no, I'm an introvert. So like all you extroverts are like tracking right now. This is your favorite sermon in like four years. (laughs) All the introverts are beginning to introvert themselves like they tend to do. Okay, you might hear this doctrine and think, heaven's a city, heaven's a party, forever. (laughs) And you might be thinking, oh God, help me, a nonstop party. That sounds terrible. I have to shake hands every single day. (laughs) I got to live on the 50th floor of a condo somewhere in a big city, please. It's going to be okay. You're going to have all the alone time in heaven that you need, but you won't be a hermit. It will be the perfect blend for you, for all of us, of solace and action. Of solace and action. You know that the truth is that introverts love people, right? Extroverts love people. Both love people. Um, Introverts just need them in differing doses, right? (laughs) Extroverts recharge at a party. They need to just be around people. They want an office in Starbucks. Introverts recharge alone by themselves. They want an office in a yurt in the Himalayas. Perfect. Both will be true in heaven. Both will be true in heaven. All right, second objection. How about this one? Oh no. You're telling me that I got to be around these people forever. Anyone been thinking this as I've been preaching? 
I got to live in the same city as Cruz forever now? Crap. I feel you, except for this. The text does not just say city. What does it say? Holy city. So I get to preach on the holiness or the sinlessness of the age to come on June 4th. But the glories of the city of God is that the presence of sin and the effects of sin will be gone forever. That changes everything about this objection. This means that in the age to come, we're going to be in community with the best version possible of each other. Whatever the image of God is that is on you with no sinfulness ever muddying those waters. Fully redeemed, fully cleansed, fully mended, fully glorified you. Not just in body, but in attitude, in disposition, in affections, in language. Your heart will be made perfect forever. That has two beautiful implications. That's going to be true of you. You know what that means? There will be no more pettiness in your soul. Imagine that. There will be no more annoyances in your soul. No more selfishness. No more pride. You are going to have a whole new capacity to love and appreciate others. You will be different. Praise God, I'm rejoicing in that. And then number two, this is also going to be true of everyone else who is there, right? No unclean thing or unclean person will ever enter this city. Everyone there will be perfected and redeemed and cleansed and healed and mended and glorified. That means that you're going to get the best version of these people. Everything that is awesome about them right now with none of the stuff that's awful. If you ever had a day with someone when they were just firing on all cylinders, they were great and they were in their groove and they were being who they are, and you're like, man, I love hanging with that person. Wow. We get so few moments in our life. There are graces when we experience them. That moment is a hint to you of the glories to come. Think of this. Every day, every encounter, every conversation, a perfected you with a perfected them, holy city. What comes to mind when I say that? I don't know why, but this week I thought of the time when I took Josh and a couple of others from Seven Mile to Texas to meet with Clint and Andy about them possibly coming up to plant a church with us. And we went and shared a meal at their house. And it was like the best of Clint. He was so pumped that they were there. He was in his apron. You know, he's a chef. And he's got like six different things going. And he told me like every chemical literally that was in all the food and like where it was originated and how it was good for you. And Andy's house was just unbelievable. And the kids were at our feet. And I was with guys that I would take a bullet for. And we were thinking, dreaming about planting a church together around a meal I got the best of everybody for two hours that night. That's heaven, just better. 
Katie's energy, Patty's activatorness, Rob's encouragement, and a list of everything else you could tell me that's awesome about everyone in here with none of their foibles forever. They may put me off in a corner somewhere to just stay away from you for the first few millennia, but after that, (laughs) that's a reward for putting up with me. After that, you get the best of me, even, forever. My dad's going to regale us with stories forever, and you're not going to get bored. It's going to be the same one again and again and again, and you're going to be like, this is awesome, because I'm in heaven. You're going to love being with these people. You're going to love it. All right, implications, and we'll finish. If this doctrine is true, if the old saint, I'll see you there, if that's actually real, dozens of implications. Let me hit you with these. Number one, we can hope in the face of loss. You will be reunited to those who love Jesus. You will. It's huge for us to begin to grasp this in the life of this church. We're a church plant. We've not done a lot of burying together. We've done some of it. I mean, I've mourned with many of you over miscarriages, and we buried a five-year-old, James Brodeur, and we've grieved with you over the loss of relatives, but we have not had a whole lot of burying of the saints of Seven Mile Road. If we hang together as long as I intend to, we're going to start doing some of that. We're going to have some seven-mile road funerals, and we will weep together. But at the bottom of that, I need there to be this assurance in our souls. We'll see them there. We'll see them there. That will dramatically change how we grieve together. Second thing, we can be okay with transience. So we have had to learn this. Very few churches, probably in the United States of America, that have turned over as many people proportionally as we have in the last six or seven years. We've planted six churches, and we've sent over 125 people to live in other places. That's a lot of transience. Do you know what one doctrine has not only kept me sane, but brought me such immense comfort. I'll see you there. I'll, I'll see you there. I remember sitting with Ajay, our first church planter, and we were both like, oh man, the last two years have been so beautiful. We could just like ping pong, tag team, preach till we die, and we'd be happy. And we made the hard decision to send them down to Philadelphia. And I just remember anchoring onto this truth or I would have had no hope or no joy to just think, you know what? This is okay. We can send a Jay and Shainu and his kids can grow up separate from my kids six hours away and we can catch up here and there and I can see stuff on Instagram and it's okay because we're advancing the gospel together and we get forever to enjoy face-to-face community and relationship. We may send more pastors and deacons from our church. It's okay. We may send sons and daughters of this church to the mission field, to the ends of the earth. It's okay. 
We may give up a family who are going to love others somewhere else. It's okay. This life is 10 minutes long. Some of us get the grace of growing deeply together long term. Let's do that for decades. But it's okay if the Lord calls someone somewhere else. We'll see them there. We'll hear their stories. We'll rejoice forever. All right, one more implication. Huge. We have to get along. We have to get along. This community right here is not like high school, you know? Did you ever have just some loser in high school and you were like, the day that we get our diploma, we are going separate ways? And I am not saying yes to your friend request on Facebook because I am never going to see you again and I'm good with it. Ever in college live in a dorm and you just knew somebody, you were like, this is, this is not forever. This is not forever. This is forever. This is forever. Now's our chance to love each other in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our mess. Now's our chance to do that so that we might have a clear conscience in eternity. I don't want the first thing I have to say to you on the day of the Lord is, I'm sorry. Now that's going to happen, right? This is a broken world. We're not going to all be BFFs in the real-time flow of church life. But we do not get to allow distance. No. We have to love each other as if we will be brothers and sisters and family forever because we will. And so this doctrine should also move you toward the other in the life of this church, especially someone that you've got issue or beef with and to say no way i'm beginning now to love you and enjoy you and rejoice in you because the day is coming when we will be reunited together forever only a community that says yes to this doctrine that gets this truth deep inside of their bones can resolve conflict can bear with one another can be unified in a way that shows off to the world the grace and the power and the future hope of Jesus. If we'll we'll see each other there, then let's not waste any time beginning to love each other here and now, today. Can you see why community is such an essential value and distinctive in the life of our church? while we make so many sacrifices to love one another, we're beginning to live according to the kingdom of heaven right now, on earth as it is in heaven, tight, tight community. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for its clarity. Thanks for its power. Thanks for its truthfulness. I pray that you would set the hearts of this church on fire for this future to come where we will see each other, recognize each other, remember each other, rejoice in each other forever. And I pray that we start to live like it right now. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen.